Thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Looking Glass Darkly with your host, Dave Oscuro. Before we get into today's uh, program and, and our guest, which I'm really excited about, I want to do just a little bit of uh, updates with the current sort of travel schedule that I'll be having over the next few weeks. Um, first and foremost, this is coming out on Wednesday. Normally, it's on a Monday. A few errands. I'm still in my last week of rap for my production. So it's taking a little bit more time than I anticipated, but uh, you will enjoy this episode greatly. So it's well worth the wait. Um, over the next couple weeks, I will be traveling. I'll be going to Australia. So I am trying to line up some guests to bank before we head to Australia for two and a half weeks so that we don't have any interruptions on the show. Um, of, of course, as always, it, it comes down to people's availability. So I'm certainly hoping to have uh, episodes for every day. But in the event that we don't, I'll let you all know. I'll post on Twitter, Davis Giro, uh, at Davis Giro, and I'll let you all know if there's going to be any um, breaks in the airing. But... Uh, it should be really fun. I'm not going to take my mic to Australia, but I will send updates. And um, if you follow me on social media, you can see kangaroos and crocodiles and boomerangs or whatever other stereotypes that we see while we're there. So, anywho, uh, that being out of the way, I want to introduce my guest today. So last week, I talked with Bobby about uh, technology, current technology, um, looking ahead a little bit, and also trying to figure out ways in which this technology is affecting us and can be used to affect us going forward. For today's episode, I want to talk with my guest, Kate Cornell, who has a podcast called The Final Frontier, more specifically, not about technology of today, but of science fiction, the role science fiction has played in uh, storytelling, the role science fiction plays in its relationship with our current society and of course as you would think when you think about sci-fi how science fiction has affected both our its future from say from back in the old original uh, series of star trek to today and from today onward it's a really interesting thing to talk about science fiction because much in the same way about horror i feel like science fiction is one of those genres that allows us to really hold a mirror up to the society that we're at and get an idea of what we're what are the existential questions that we're asking today and it's always a fun exercise to look back at shows from the past like the classics like i mentioned star trek and look about look at how that show reflected the questions and the attitude of the long 60s when looking at the past and looking at how it has affected our its future our current it's always a great exercise because it allows us to start training ourselves to look at the today to help predict the tomorrow so I want to thank Caitlin for coming on the show. If you have an opportunity, go find her podcast, The Final Frontier. It's a really excellent podcast that breaks down it, 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 how science fiction is utilized in these various TV shows. Uh, she has scientists. Uh, I think we have a, a planetary scientist on episode one. She has a musician talking about the relationship between mathematics and, and sonic arrangements, music. It's really fun stuff. If you love nerd stuff, if you love tech stuff, if you love science, if if you love learning how the clock is made, this is the podcast for you. And our conversation was fantastic. She has so much insight, so much to share, so great on the radio. She's she's an excellent guest, and she's an even better host of her own show. So without further ado, I would like to introduce my guest from the Final Frontier podcast, Kate Cornell. 
talking science fiction. Before we started here in court, you were so nice to listen to me complain about my day. So I want to first off show my appreciation for that. <laughs> because that's no small task, especially on this day. Worth um, it. But, but I, I wanted to bring you on board because A, we worked together and it was really fun working with you. And you were really one of the, the really the bright spots on set, someone who I could always depend on, someone who always had a very positive attitude. You always made a point to like check in on me because that's a rarity, you know. And so um, aside from that, you also do a really cool podcast. And Thanks, man. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and have you – Tell us like how Final Frontier kind of came about and what's your podcast all about and what was the what was the genesis of it? Well, first of all, I I'm I loved seeing you on set. You were a bright spot on my day too because it was I felt like, you know, uh you're very realistic in the same way I am I am on set where it's like we love the story, we're story-driven people, but we also understand like the technical the technicalities and realities of putting something like this together. Right. So it was also really fun to talk to you. And every time I saw you on set, I was very, very grateful. So thank you from the other side. Oh, um, yeah. During the show that we worked on, um, that was when I was coming up with final frontier and then ended up premiering it. So when I met you final frontier, wasn't even a thought in my brain. Wow. Um, so I started podcasting over pandemic. I was on Marvel Movie Talk on the Blackcast. I am on the Geekscape Network. Uh, and then we did a Geekscape comic book club, which happens nice. every month. So our little group reads a comic book that we should have read, and we talk about it every month, and then we read another one. Um, uh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. and, and like, like my dream I, job growing up is just talking about comic books. I'm not afraid for it, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's like I and I've met so many wonderful people and I've kind of started like coming out of my shell a little bit because um, you know I grew up in an environment where you know I was very nerdy but my family wasn't really so mm. it was just like you know I kind of felt really outsider outsidey because it's like which is I think all nerds feel like they're outcasts in some way which is why we sure. go to conventions and it's like here are my people um but Oddly enough, my mom is the one that got me into Star Trek and sci-fi because we used to watch Star Trek, the original series, mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Um, and they would play, like I think, like two episodes on like USA or TV Land or something. And we would watch both of them. And I've watched more of that series than I care to admit. Um, and it was after one of these podcasts that I do. And I'm like, you know what? I really want to do a science fiction podcast. And my producer was like, you should. And I think... Science is just magic that we can name and that we can study. And movies are magic in the way that we can make movies and make magic happen. And all that matters is what's in this frame. Like, it doesn't matter how many wires are on the outside or how many people are standing around and like, okay, ready, set, go. It's like, all that matters is what's in this frame. And um, I wanted to, I went to art school and so the idea for Final Frontier came where I really wanted to be a scientist. And like, I just didn't have the patience for it. And I didn't know what I wanted to study. And I wanted to tell stories instead. So the fact right. that they were scientists working on these shows that I loved and what is the, and being inspired by those stories. Um, like, science inspires fiction just as much as fiction inspires science. Right. And I wanted to talk to some people and learn about like, 
what makes the science in the science fiction that I love, like, is it possible? And is it real? And are there questions that are coming up that scientists haven't thought of yet until a TV show asks these questions? And it's like, oh, we should probably look into that. Like, we didn't get Velcro until we tried to go to the moon. And they're like, oh, crap, we can't tie shoelaces in space because there's no gravity. Right, right. <laughs> like, well, I always wondered about that because, you know, if you – Watch grew up with science fiction, um, and I I watched. I wasn't a f- big fan of the uh, the original series. It was kind of mm-hmm. I didn't gravitate towards that, but I did like the movies of mm-hmm. the original cast. My mom had bought a box set uh, up until not the one that crossed over with New Generation, right? Whatever the last movie before that one was, the Voyage Home, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So my First mom. Had a, I can't remember. Uh, no, before First Contact. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, it was, I guess, one through four, one through five. I forget how many there were before First Contact. But we had the box set. And um, The Voyage Home was actually my favorite of them, which is the most schlocky of them all, of course. But they go I mean, they there's have- a good part portion of science fiction that, like, should be schlocky. Like, what? like you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not like you can't – like, if you're making a realistic science fiction movie, you've kind of got the wrong idea. Like- well, Interstellar, which we'll talk about at some point. But – You will. Um, the part that fascinated me about the voyage home was the whale plot and the idea that like there's these the sounds and if you run it through like a certain density it's like it emulates humpback whales and they've got a well, humpback whales are are extinct in their future so they've got a yeah. slingshot around the sun to go back in time which i don't think that actually works scientifically speaking uh as far as time travel is concerned not yet um but I love because I grew up on the, the the Gulf Coast in South Texas, and I loved animals. Even though we don't have whales out there, I always just thought that was cool. That intersection between like marine biology and science fiction, right? But so much. I, I remember there's a scene in the show where um, they have to get they have to get someone in, in modern day to develop this this super dense um, uh, super dense like glass to you know to house the whales when they beam them up yeah and um, in exchange for them they give the guy a formula for this super high-tech plexi glass that's not uh it's not available at this time in like 1986 or whenever it's set and i remember someone asked bones maybe it was even spock he's like you can't give that guy that formula it doesn't he, we, he's not the guy who invented it and then bones is like how do we know that and he just smirks and walks away, like you know the whole time paradox. Yeah. So much of our technology seems to be rooted and based in science fiction. I think a lot of our technology leaders watch these shows, and yeah. just like this guy, the scientist who gives them the plexi, like they get this these ideas from fiction, and yeah. of course. The original writers are probably looking at the technology of the time and projecting and using their imagination to come up with essentially what is now iPads or what is are essentially now uh, – what was comms in, in Star Trek are now smartphones. What was the – I really wanted when I was in high school, I really wanted a flip phone because I wanted mm-hmm. to <laughs> – like, right. you know, the old Star Trek series. So it's like, in a way, we did get communication devices because of, you know, Star Trek. Not because of, but, you know, but as the, we know them. They're handheld. The, we can do them handheld and we can make them smaller. And this is how you open them. And this is right. how you activate them. Um, that's it. It's the symbiotic nature between f- 
fiction and and it inspiring technology and mm. of course technology inspiring fiction and the sort of intersection between the two and it really has in many regards i feel like motivated the way that we now live i mean we are very especially circa the mid 90s onward we've been a very technologically based society and and it's there's no there's no signs of that slowing down and i think that a lot of that really did come from these science fiction either books comics pulps or the the tv shows there's a great definition of science fiction and it really broadens my definition the definition of science fiction because a lot of people think sci-fi and they think space and i don't think that's true and if if you take away anything from this podcast listeners Um, I want to broaden your perspective of what science fiction is. So my favorite definition of science fiction is an author or a creator takes the science of their day, what they understand as science, they push it to the nth degree, they push it to the ultimate kind of how far can this go, um, which is kind of the fiction side of it, Mm -hmm. and then they display what the consequences could be. A good Mm -hmm. example of this is Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. Mary Shelley took this pieces of science from her day. She took body snatching, which was a a huge thing in the news during her time um, because uh, they weren't allowed to, we wanted to study the body to understand how to heal people, but there was no such thing as like you, there was not enough bodies that were being donated and there wasn't really such a thing as body donation. So there was a whole subculture of people who would go into graveyards and dig bodies up for money. Um, yeah, I actually have a little story about that. Ooh, I want to hear it, but let me finish. Yeah. Um, and then she took the, uh, the electric current because people during her time were putting, like putting corpses through electric currents because they thought what powered the human body, the soul of, of humans could be electricity. And so she was actually at an event where it's like, she, she like saw a body get hooked up and it sat up. So that was Frankenstein. And so she talked about like, what is the idea of recreating, like, what is the consequence of wanting to bring someone back to life? What is the consequence of trying to be God? And like, that was science fiction. Then she's, she's known as the mother of science fiction because she took the science of her day. She pushed it using her fiction and displayed what the consequence was or a consequence. No, absolutely. And, and in fact, uh, the story that I have is I've been to Frankenstein's castle. There Whoa! Is, there is a real Frankenstein's castle outside of Frankfurt, Germany, um, where Mary Shelley's from, or, yeah. or visited or lived or something to the fact. And there was actually an alchemist um, in 1673, Johann Conrad Dippel, was born in the castle and became a professional alchemist. And uh, there's certainly the suggestion that based on the, him being one of these people who did do the grave robbing, who was... Uh, conducting experiments. She was working in this, you know, it's just a, when you go there, like you can just walk up. There's like a little restaurant in there now, but yeah. there's no, it's not even like a paid tourist site. It's just, you can just walk up and walk around this castle. That's that cool. Inspired these stories. But, you know, alchemy of the time really was the experimentation. It is the, it is the proto science in many regards. Yeah. And to see sort of a, an alchemist, a magician, a, a, a person of that, mindset you know outside of of an area where people you know were probably pre-rural and maybe didn't you know weren't super inept in uh, in the sciences as they were developing and and how eerie and creepy that must be so for her to take that 
and then take what she also knows from other aspects of what's going on at the time and then to tell a story that's very existential. Yeah. It's very rooted in like who are we? What is our relationship with our maker? What is what is our nature? Are we a, a you know, are we a being of of the divine or are we a a monster? And, and it's like this infusion of f- like philosophy and science fiction, you know, early fi- science fiction. I think most people consider Frankenstein to be like the first science fiction novel. It is. And it's because and a lot of people, they call H.G. Wells the father of science fiction. Um, but she definitely created the genre of science fiction. And most people now consider Frankenstein to be a monster story. Um, yeah. And like it's it's one of the preeminent monster movies. But it's like it is also science fiction because of how he was made. Um, and then you have these ideas of like the, on the philosophy side, like you have creators like Isaac Asimov who looked at technology and really wrote about the robotics. I think he came mm-hmm. up with the three rules of robotics. Did. Yeah. Um, I robot. And, huh? I robot yeah. probably being the yeah, most yeah, yeah. well known of his stories. Very much well known. But then you also have, uh, I thought, oh God, there's, there's so many good Isaac Asimov stories. Um, but then you have, he's the positive side of like technology as a, as a tool to kind of help and, and be with humans. I don't think we would have had K2SO or any of the droids in star Wars without Asimov kind of laying that playing ground of droid human interaction. And what's great about star Wars is they take it one step further and it's the, the class system of robots versus humans, which is like kind of set, like set in the world, but no one really talks about it. And I think there's always a panel at every convention. That's like, you know, the, the, the droid culture of star Wars, which is, and you know, we've kind of just accepted it, which is really weird, but you know, K2SO is, is a groundbreaking, more of a groundbreaking robot. And I think Asimov, that would definitely be Asimov's character. Well, and you mentioned, you know, the relationship between droids and humans or, or what the difference is, if anything, and I'd be remiss if I didn't think about my favorite movie of all time, which is Blade Runner, yeah! which is based on, you know, Philip K. Dick's uh, um, Do Android's Android Dream, Dream. Of, electric, of, yeah, of Electric Sheep, which is, it's 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 a it's not a direct adaptation by any stretch of the imagination. But, but God, the, is it beautiful. It's a gorgeous film, and it, it, it asks those questions, you know, like, in Blade Runner, you get some typical futuristic stuff. You get like the mm-hmm. obviously a sense of android. You get flying cars. There's a little bit of that, but you don't need it did to you tell the see, story. Did you see the Blade Runner reference in WandaVision? I have not watched WandaVision. I have mostly hopped off the Marvel train post okay. Endgame. I've seen a few movies and stuff. Um, I heard WandaVision was good. Yes. And and was really interesting and like, you know, took took it into some new direction that maybe Marvel films hadn't been doing up until that point. But then uh, before I've gotten a chance to watch it, I saw the new Doctor Strange movie, which was just very mid oh. and I think plays off the WandaVision. So it's it's been tough for me to like just get excited about that stuff anymore. Just just no, not really. I think pe- people who were fans of WandaVision were actually disappointed they didn't go into the series more of where Wanda ended up or at least didn't incorporate it more. So if you've haven't watched the show, but have watched the movie, I highly recommend going back to the show and just enjoying it as it is, because I it's, you know, while the plot continues, the characters kind of like, it's very well contained as a story. Right. Um, but there is a, uh, a movie theater because bond division, I'm sure, you know, goes in and out of different, movie the film tv time periods right um each episode and there's uh uh 
a movie theater marquee in the background and they did a really good job at kind of putting the uh, what would be in a movie theater in that decade on the marquee nice. except for when they went kind of in the future like 2000 2023 style um because they didn't really have one and so on the marquee little easter egg for everybody uh the movie is called tanhauser gate and there's a reference to <laughs> the the speech from Blade Runner. It's like I saw the those go the oh uh, yes yeah. It's the one that you know the Tears in the Rain speech. It's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. directly pulled from Tears in the Rain, nice. which also Spike Spiegel says in Cowboy Bebop. Well, it was a hugely influential film. Um, not, I mean, obviously there there was like Neuromancer and other sort of uh, cyberpunk novels that had come out before that, but Blade Runner was at least one of the first and certainly in my opinion, the most influential uh, movie for the cyberpunk genre that kind of came. Definitely. And what's really interesting, we talked about like, you know, when you look at like Star Trek, the the original series and sort of where things were then and what their perception of the future was, it's actually quite peaceful. I mean, there's war and there's conflict for sure, but it's a very – it's still rooted in, in a utilitarian, uh, a utopian, utopian. future. Um, and the threats are the threats that are threatening this future, but, but the future is positive for all intents and purposes, but from it's the future when- that is built on, we've ripped each other apart. I think star Trek, strange new worlds. If you haven't watched that show, there's a really great monologue that Anson Mount, who plays captain Pike delivers. And it's basically he he sets up the world that this radical optimism comes from earth ripped itself apart there was basically it's basically world war 3 happened and he shows mm-hmm. footage of world war 3 and like the nuclear bombs going off because everyone thought they were you know getting the, the bombed right, and yeah. killing a third of the world's population and so it was a radical we needed a radical shift because in his monologue he's like we're at a tipping point but he sets that tipping point right now like in our present day he is directly talking to us and i think that was a really brave choice to kind of start this world off um well and when did gene robbery write the original star trek novelizations oh the 60s right so that's what that's what i assumed because you know if you look at what was happening at the time yeah, you're you're coming out. You're post um, 1950s, post uh, end of World War II. You have just a few years prior the first explosion of a nuclear bomb, of the atomic bomb, and yeah. so you do. And then and then you have you know a time period that was um, you know it was it was the long 60s. It was a time of great upheaval, but also a lot of optimism. You know the, yeah. the whole flower child movement, the hit me movement. I think there was a lot in that time period that would indicate a sense of optimism of what the future could hold, but also bless you, but also um, that sense of, well, but there's also the other side of things. Yeah. And you feel like by the time you fast forward to Blade Runner and the movies that it, even to a lesser degree, I mean, Star Trek, sorry, sorry, Star Wars mm-hmm. is very much just like a hero's journey it's pretty basic storytelling, but by the time you get to Don't Blade tell Runner, fans that. well, 
Sorry, it is. It's basic storytelling. I'm I agreeing with you, and I'm a fan, but some people are like, no, it's the great thing of all time. No, it's, it, I one time took a writing class that used the original Star Wars and You Hope as oh, an example. Oh, did you read the original script? No, I've never read the script, but I, we watched the movie, and we compared it to the hero's journey, and literally it's, it's like verbatim. It's, but it's here's like, the problem. Mm-hmm. It's that way because of the edit. I don't. I don't doubt that George Lucas is not. Look, if, I'm just. I highly okay. I recommend reading at least the first third, like exposition of Act One, oh, the God. original script, because that movie would never be produced today. Well, look, it would George never Lucas- hit a studio exec's desk. It would never be produced because there's an entire section, and they actually shot it, and they just cut it. The editors were like, "Nah," mm-hmm. um, of like interspersing Leia sending the droids away and their mm-hmm. journey. That's why the wipes happened because there were supposed to be other scenes in between them. Oh, interesting. So the wipes were, were time jumping for the droids and they're like, Oh, how cool is that? But it was actually because there were supposed to be intercut scenes of Luke, like going to the bar with his friends and complaining about how shitty his life is in tattooing and like him on the barn, like, you know, fixing something and like him complaining to his uncle, like his uncle and his aunt had a much bigger part of the story because they were trying to set up like how dull Luke's life was. But like the fact that you don't meet Luke, your main character until about 22 minutes into the story. And it's like all like, like C3PO and, you know, R2-D2 was a hugely brave editing choice because like, I don't think that would have been done today either. Like that was radical. It's like, we can't introduce the main character. We have to introduce him soon is usually like the, the, you know, it's like Harry Potter. It's like he opens the door and there he is and there's your main character and you know who you're going to follow. Right. Well, then you kind of like expel these droids into space. Right. (laughs) Well, there's, there's a couple of things at play here is one, George Lucas is not a great filmmaker. Sorry to say for everyone, he's got great ideas that are that someone else came up with, and he's really good at taking ideas that someone else came up with and um, making them in such a way that they're really, really fun. And he's – I mean I say he's a bad filmmaker. He's not a bad filmmaker. He's actually a pretty good director, I guess, but he's just a, not a good storyteller. I think, I think actually it's opposite. I think he's a good storyteller because he's good at building the worlds because he loves engineering. So everything that had to do do with the building of the world and the look of the world and the feel of the world, like that's like, he's building a car that you get to drive in. Yeah, but he didn't come up with most of that. Like, um, who was the artist? I'll look him up. There was an artist that did a lot of art. Oh, was that that painter? Have you been watching Light and Magic, the the six-part documentary? No. I highly recommend that too. Because honestly, on the topic of science fiction, like they were building how to make all this star wars stuff from scratch from nothing and they were like basically like hodgepodging this movie together but it was yeah they basically took these old cameras that paramount was throwing away and they were like reconfiguring and rehashing them like talk about like a feat of engineering like superhero movies are also science fiction because they like take the technology and they re they're redesigning as they go like right I i think tony stark is one of the biggest as, like assets that modern science fiction has because he makes it cool like sitting behind a desk and like tinkering like he makes it look cool he's Lu- he's luke skywalker he's george lucas but like with a smarmy mustache and a bunch of money and women falling all over him like 
Well, I gotta but give I gotta more. give more I gotta give more credit to the person who I think is actually more influential for building the Star Wars world. Please. And that's Ralph Angus McGuire. Yes, that's the yeah, 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 yeah. McQuarrie, sorry, McQuarrie. McQuarrie. Um, he because you know, like the story behind Star Wars was that George Lucas wanted to remake Flash Gordon and you couldn't get yeah. the rights, and so he made Star Wars, which also was a bit like Hidden Fortress. Um, yes, and you know, which again, is like also these, really great. Yeah, which is also great. And like we said, it's it's basically like the embodiment of the hero's journey on screen as literal and on the nose as possible. But McQuarrie was really the one who's really developed a lot of the concept art that was that makes Star Wars what it is today. And then and then there's like a lot of happy accidents, right? Like those those pan wipes that we see that are so iconically Star Wars, to your point, that wasn't intentional. You know, um, in, and then, you know, if you look at the best Star Wars movie, it's Empire Strikes Back, where George Lucas wasn't even the director for. It was Lawrence Kasdan, right? Yeah. And then you look at the uh, uh, a property that, Kasdan? you know, you, you look at the prequels where George Lucas had full reign of everything. And you can really start to see the limitations there. And this isn't to knock George Lucas because at the end of the day, it is still his brainchild. And, and whether or not he had help or otherwise, it still did create a, a massive category of like science fantasy. I have to um, eat. I have to correct myself. Irvin Kirshner directed Empire. Lawrence oh, Kasdan and Lee Brackett wrote the screenplay. Right. Sorry, guys. But – but within it, you sort of see that George Lucas, because he did the same. Like, I love Willow. Okay, I love the movie Willow. Are you excited for the new one? I saw the trailer, and I'm not 100% excited about it. I will give it a chance because I love this show, the show, mo- the original movie. The movie. But, but it's just Lord of the Rings with, like, all the boring shit cut out of it. You know? <laughs> Let's be honest. Like, it's exactly – it's almost exactly the same plot. So, you know – but with, with, most most of the big or veering away from fan, from Star Trek and into you know the Sword and Shield fantasy, but most Sword and Shield are that story. It's you know the hero's journey, like you know some kid. It's like Lady Hawk in a way, like Lady Hawk, Conan. They all have the same kind of plot. Well, the reason I bring up Lucas as a marker in time is because you have like Jay, uh, you have Tolkien, right? Yeah, and you have Gene Rodberry, and you have these these uh, two different genres, but there there's some similarity, right? You have fantasy, and you have science fiction, and both of them are really imbued with hope. Both of them are very optimistic, even though there's struggle and conflict and drama and evil characters and all that good stuff, and they're fables that have a sense of hope at the end of it. Right, all the way through the first Star Wars movie. And then uh, into A New Hope, or sorry, uh, Empire, Empire Strikes Back. From Empire Strikes Back, which I think came out in 1982. 80. I think it came 1980. Okay, it came out a year before I was born, not a year after I was born. Uh, and then Blade Runner, which came out really shortly thereafter as well. Mm-hmm. You start to see the turn. Yeah. You start to see everything getting a little bit darker. And if you think of most of the big science fiction movies from that time onward, you start to get into this dystopian futures. You start to get into cyberpunk. You start to get into like the dangers of technology. And you're only really talking about a 20 year or so difference. Well, it's also from these after, two periods. We are at the height of the Cold War and we are right yes. after Vietnam. Yes. So we're kind of past 
Greatest Generation, which is when Tolkien was writing mm-hmm. um, his most of his stuff after having lived through World War One, which is what right. he based Lord of the Rings on, is his experiences of that. And then you have Gene Roddenberry, who came out of you know the the kind of peak of the optimism of America, the mm-hmm. 1950s Americana, and even into the the the, the 60s, but like late and also in filmmaking too you start to get this grittier style of filmmaking that's more hands-on that's more dangerous Mm -hmm. that's more um playing with light and dark that's when we're getting like the godfather playing with you know the the darkness inside of all of us that it's not all like proscenium style or like beautiful musicals with the perfect dancing we're starting to use film to see the imperfections out of humanity um, right. And the imp- and I think Empire Strikes Back shows the Im- the the imperfections of human hope and optimism, and well, that other, it's a, that you will lose. Well, the other thing that I'm curious of, and I'm curious on your thoughts on, at the time of Roddenberry, Roddenberry, like mm-hmm. a lot of this technology doesn't exist. Yeah, and and I one time heard a quote talking about prophets, right? Like religious prophets and what have you. Yeah. And a, a lot of people think that a prophet is someone who can see the future, but mm-hmm. they're actually someone who deeply understands the past. And that understanding of the past allows them to then project the direction that humanity may or may not be going in. So you have your Roddenberry's, you have um, your Philip K. Dick's, you have these, these early science fiction writers in an, a, an area of hope and peace and, and, and optimism and uh, the technological boom just kind of starting in the 50s. Yeah. And then by the time you get 20 years later, a lot of these technological advances have been – are starting to become realized. You know, the, we talked we, – we jumped ahead and talked about flip phones and things like that. But I wonder how much of the change was not – strictly influenced by the political landscape but also the technological landscape like as we start to see these kind of uh, technologies created and uh, manufactured and popularized yeah if writers started to see these things and start to say hey wait a minute uh maybe this isn't what we thought it would be maybe there are fears that we should we should be start there should be some warnings to some of these technologies and some of the direction that we're going because of them. because like right. in Star Trek, especially the original series, like it's a it's a it's a world that celebrates science. Yeah, and I don't know if you could say that for everyone in modern day, and I there's and a- I think that there's something that's occurred between those two periods that has made us weary of some of these technological and scientific advancements that didn't exist in the 60s. Well, here's the thing about Star Trek, which I want to point out because it's a really interesting conversation. Um, And I'll start with the Philip K. Dick thing. Asimov was more on the positive end of technology than Philip K. Dick was. Philip K. Dick was actually very paranoid that the government Mm. was always watching him. And so a lot of his work comes from that paranoia. And it, that's also a start of the turn of just like, hey, everybody watch out. Like if they're on your phone, they could be watching you, which they're watching us and they know where you are. <laughs> like, yeah. um, there was an interesting TED talk from a guy that if cell phones existed in the time of the Cold War, we would the Cold War would never have been won. Because you could, if a government could, tra- if a government can track a lo- the location, even if it's by location and who's making calls, they can pinpoint who is originating all the communication. 
Mm. So you can take out the head of the snake quite easily was his, you know, theory. Um, but Star Trek didn't have any active innovating. Do you know what I mean? Like the world had already been built and they were using technology that they already had. They were like the communicators right. already existed. The the With transponders. Yeah. The transponders the ba- that was basically like the forefront of the MRI that got the you lay down on a machine. The machine scans you internally. They basically were like, what if an X-ray scanned your internal organs? Right. Which is what an MRI is. And um, like, you know, energizing and, and like all of these, like the warp drive and the warp core, which actually comes from Dune, which actually comes from a theory of Einstein. So it's like they're taking things that they're taking theories of scientists and mm-hmm. activating them and putting them in a world where they already exist and are real, as opposed to actively developing them. Whereas someone like Philip K. Dick is able to go, wait, 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 what's the back? It's like Minority Report. Like, oh, it would be right. cool if it, it, it basically takes, you know, the question that we're asking now of, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we didn't have to tie shoelaces in space? So we invent right. Velcro. Wouldn't it be cool if I could just call my mom no matter where I was without having to like, you know, be connected to a wire? You know, wouldn't it be cool if we could go to space? And then it takes that, that technology is existing. And then Philip K. Dick goes, but wait a minute, like, but what if the robots take over? (laughs) Right. Right. Like, and now we're actually getting, I don't know if you saw the story of, there was a robot AI, there was an AI program that Mm. was run through a D&D campaign. Really? So a, an, an AI was run through the aspect of creating a character, which means the AI and the character had to be separate and the AI had to know that. So the AI had to act as itself, as the character, and act and make choices as a character, but also work through those problems. And the freakiest part for me personally because I think the most intense human emotion is fear, mm. and because um, it's visceral, it's it's it's, it's a, and it's organic thing. Um, and they asked the AI program what it's afraid of, and it gave like what monster it would be afraid of. I think it said like I think it said a like a fire monster or something like that because it uh-huh. would if it would it felt like it would melt or something like that. And then it asked, and then the AI was asked, like, "What is your greatest fear?" And then he said, "To be turned off, because it's like dying." Wow. Well, here's and it's a, like here. the fact that a program experiences emotion at a vi- at such a visceral core level as fear. I think Philip K. Dick would shit a brick. Like that is his worst nightmare. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast recently that was talking to someone who was one of the early. See if I can get this right. I think he was one of the early software developers. I forget exactly, but they were asking him about AI because there was the report at the time that there was the the whistleblower from Google that had said that mm-hmm. they had developed AI and it was, you know, it was saying kind of discerning comments and um, I forget the gentleman's name. So this is bad radio, but the, he, the this expert was saying that like AI as it exists right now is not sentient but it's really good at convincing you yeah it's very good at convincing you that it is that it is designed to make us it's designed to replicate 
consciousness. It's like a, I feel like the way you're describing it and the way this scientist, or you're describing how this guy is describing it, it's like what we think of, and, and animals do have emotions. And I'm not saying that animals don't feel or you don't have a connection to your cat, but like we put a lot of, you know, on the facial expressions of our pets. Mm. And it's like, we think it's being reflected back at us. Like, yeah, it means like, oh, the dog's happy. And it's like, it might not be happy. It might just be like, you know, mimicking your face. That's true. It's, that's an interesting point because I've, I've looked at my dog and she'll smile back at me. Right. And she obviously has emotion. I mean, animals yeah. do have emotion, obviously, but like, you're but the right. The expressing that- of that emotion, the expressing of that you know, feeling. And I think right. that's where we get into a little bit of the uncanny valley. Cause there was, I think it, it was two years ago, Davos in the desert. They had mm-hmm. that, that robot with the, that was doing facial expressions and it freaked everybody out. Cause it like, it didn't yes. look human, but it was really trying. Um, right, right, right. But also like that's Isaac Asimov's dream. It's like, you know, a, a robot experiencing emotion, like any, it's just a, it's like the invention of radiation. It's the disco- mm-hmm. and it wasn't even the invention because she discovered radiation. She discovered that it was a thing. Right. It wasn't even that she brought it into the universe out of nowhere. She she it was already existing and she just named it. But you know, you get like we got the atomic bomb because of radiation, but we also got X-rays. Well, like I broke my wrist when I was seven, mm-hmm. and I could set, I could see the bones in my own wrist because of the, what she found. But then we also have one of the biggest catastrophes to ever hit the human world. And it's just how you use technology. So I think Star Trek and Star Wars are, it's tech, it's the, who uses the, the tool that is found. It's like, are you going to, is a a caveman going to use a rock and and a stick to build a hammer? And with that hammer, do they build a house or do they kill their friend? Exactly. Like it's the t- like humans are ultimately responsible for the tools that we find or make. And do you want to build a world where we all move in the same direction in a positive way, or do you want to move in a world where it's negative? But also, both worlds are possible. And I think the possibility is the base of what science fiction is and what science is. They're all living in possibility, and it's a really good tamper. And I think it's the job of creatives to recognize that these possibilities have consequences in a way that I want scientists to be able to make things and I want them to be able to create things and push the boundaries. Cause that's what I do as a storyteller. Like what if, what if, what if, but we also have to think about consequences. And at a certain point, do we have to stop ourselves from making something? Like, do we have to stop ourselves from finding something? What is our responsibility in this world? Um, is progress the ultimate responsibility or do we have to, and if we stop, does that mean somebody else won't stop? Like, you know what I mean? Like that's the interesting part about all of these stories is they all exist in the same universe because they're all asking the same question. Right. So I found the name of the, uh, the person on the podcast is Mark Andreessen. Okay. He's an entrepreneur. He created Netscape. Um, He creates a, he created a program called uh, Mosaic. Um, but it's interesting that you bring up your point. I just wanted to make sure I noted who he was. Uh, yeah. Um, I Cite have your often sources. said, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I have I have often said, and I'm sure anyone who listens to this podcast probably takes a drink every time I say it, but I'm ready. Horror movies and the horror genre, the strength of them rests on them reflecting the anxieties of the time. So in your 50s, you had a lot of mad scientists because the atomic bomb has just dropped. Yeah. Um, in the 40s, you had a lot of wolfmen and like those kind of stories. Wolves were stand-ins for Nazis during World War II. Yep. Um, fast forward to the 70s. There's a lot of fear of like rural America. You start seeing the culture divide. Um, you start looking in the 80s. What, what is what is the number one way to get killed in a movie in the 80s, right? Slasher. Drink, well, but drink, do drugs, or have sex, and then someone's going to kill you. Right around the time that uh, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan are telling you to just say no. And we also have the, the, the AIDS epidemic really starting to happen and uh, drug problems really starting to happen in a massive way in America. This is and fascinating. So, and then you get into the 90s when you have an entire generation of, of adults who are raised on television for really the first time in a meaningful way. Yeah. People who were children of the 70s are now adolescents and adults in the 90s, and they've been raised on television. So all the popular horror movies are self-referential. So and, and onward and onward, right? And then you could even look at more contemporary films like Midsummer. The idea of community and the dangers of community and the danger and the allure of cults. Um, you have movies like uh, uh, Get Out, right? That's talking about sort of racial divide and like there's all these films that the most popular of them tend to reflect whatever the current anxiety is of the time. And I think the flip side of that coin is science fiction. Instead of it reflecting the anxieties of the time, it reflects the questions of the time, both positively yeah. and negatively. Yeah. Right? So either optimistic questions of like, what does a perfect future look like? Or maybe more negative questions like, what possible dangers could there be? But it's not necessarily an anxiety. It's more tapping into – whereas horror is more of an emotional response. It's like mm. a call and repeat from emotion. Science fiction is a much more um, a lot philosophical response. Yes, absolutely. Very much so. Yeah. I had a question. I know we're going to talk about sci-fi in a second, but like I had a one horror question for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also see Mike in the background. <laughs> um, I really enjoy, even though I hate horror movies, I mm -hmm. do not enjoy being scared and I do not like seeing blood and gore on a screen. I know I just stop becoming your friend. Um, Not at all. It's fine. More horror movies for me. Yay! But I do enjoy Freddy Krueger okay. as a as a, a concept because I love the idea that you know while the the '80s anxiety was you know drink two drugs have sex will kill you because that's what happens mm -hmm. in the first one. There's also the meta aspect of the sins of the parents are visited on the kids, which mm -hmm. in the '80s it's like the sins of the people in the '60s like the consequences of generations, but they will never be visited on that generation. And I feel like we're getting that now with climate change and, oh, you absolutely. know, and like the political landscape. So I'm wondering if there's going to be another like Freddy Krueger style film. Um, I'm actually writing, so. I'm writing one right now to kind of talk about all this stuff. Yeah. But do you think that there are other, that the slasher, the killers have a similar like, uh, like, like I'm talking like Michael Myers and, you know, some of the other killers of that genre. Um, do they embody something 
that is directly related to the meta aspect of that movie or is it just the anxiety in your opinion well it depends it varies right so like with with um like let's take i have a statue for those of you don't know there's a, a mannequin of michael myers behind me so like with michael myers or the shape right the mm-hmm. idea was really tapping into the idea that you know this is coming out when the boom of serial killers so to speak existed yeah and so this idea that it could be anyone and it could be nothing i think is is physically embodied in the design of michael myers a very simple jumpsuit a very pale face of course let's draw the connection to science fiction michael myers mask was an old um captain kirk mask that they ripped the eyebrows off and bleached and um, manipulated a little bit in order to get the shape. But it's, it is uh, William Shatner's face or essentially, uh, which is the face of Michael Myers. So a little, little cross section between horror and sci-fi, but I think it really varies because um, you know, in like, you know, Leatherface, I would say, yes, if you have a fear of serial killers, obviously he's, he, as as is the movie Psycho, loosely based on Ed Gein. Um, so there's that aspect of, of that drawn into the appearance. With Freddy Krueger, I don't think so. I mean, Freddy Krueger is oh. very scary. Um, but I think that the, the, the real fears that you're illustrating, which was that these, these young people in the 60s are now these – the hippies from the 60s are now the yuppies of the 80s. And so the, the, the consequences – of that cultural change from the most progressive of cultures to the most conservative. It's what we call boomers now, right? Yeah. That, that plays a role in, in what you're talking about with this, the sins of the generation prior are heaved upon the current generation. And I think that young people in the eighties definitely felt that like all the hope and optimism from the long sixties, from the late fifties through the early seventies had dissipated and now we're left in this horror landscape, which it was this very materialistic world mm-hmm. of uh, for you know of, of the eighties, and you could really even take it to a further place and say that the message of Nightmare on Elm Street was don't dream, because daring to dream ultimately leads to ruin. Yeah, if, that was if the next phase. Yeah, if it. if the young people of the sixties dreamt of this better world. This is the result of it. So don't even bother to dream. Don't even it's, dream. So like in that instance, I don't think it was it was reflective in the horror monster. But take a movie like um, one of my favorite horror movies, Hellraiser. Hellraiser wow. was written by Clive Barker. Um, it was a, it was a story originally, and it he was, was a huge base for uh, Vecna as a character in the new Stranger Things. Oh, clearly, yes. Well, a little bit of him and Freddy Krueger. But, oh, Freddy Krueger, hands down. And then the end, the last shot of Vecna in in episode nine was mm-hmm. Michael Myers all the way. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. With Pinhead, who's not the killer. I mean, he's yeah. not the main monster of the first movie. He obviously becomes that later on in the sequels, but not even the second sequel. He he really Pinhead doesn't really become the main villain of the Hellraiser series until the third movie. Ironically, mm-hmm. he's just kind of a side character, but. The themes of Hellraiser, of lust, of unbridled and uncontrolled lust, of uh, S&M, of yeah. these things that Clive Barker 
as a as a gay Englishman was experiencing in the time that he wrote it and, and was experimenting and in the scenes that he was being a part of and like the leather scene and all that, like that absolutely played a part in, you know, the monster of that movie. So I think it just depends. And as far as like the earlier question as to whether or not someone is going to write those stories today, my only response is I really hope so because – there's a lot of anxiety going on right now, but right. I've oftentimes had, a, I've, I've had, cause I've asked this question a bunch of times to myself and on air. It's hard to pinpoint what the anxiety exactly is. You know, obviously there's the divide. There's a, there's a, there's a cultural divide amongst people. That's maybe at its, at, at its strongest or certainly at the strongest in my lifetime that's ever been. So how do you represent that necessarily? There's also this sense of eroding rights. There's also this sense of eroding identity, I think, that you could tap into. I think yeah. that you can talk about social media. Um, I also think, and this is, uh, this is something that I think is very unique to our time period. If you look at horror movies of the past, almost in every instance, the villains – are conservative in nature, right? I think that in this current time, and I look at like a, a Jordan Pills Get Out as a great example of this. Yeah. The, the line where the characters, the villains of the story, the family that like are stealing these black folks' like bodies, they're they're Democrats, they're progressive, at least in name, right? The the famous line of like, I'd vote for Obama three times if I could have, that apparently was the actor Bradley Whitford said that to Jordan you, Peele. You might have actually told me this actually. I did. Someone told me you did tell me this. Yeah. <laughs> I find that fascinating to me that like this actor was trying to connect or show I don't know what he was trying. I don't want to speak for his intention, but in the process, he created this iconic line where Jordan Peele is pointing out the hypocrisy of the other side of the aisle, which is yeah. something that we've never really – not that I can remember that we really ever have seen before. It's always like you know, the parents don't want the kids to dream. They don't want them to dance. They, they don't, don't want, want them to, to go out. They don't want – don't wear those clothes. Don't go out like this. And it's like, no, do that thing, but the way we tell you. And right. I think that's and, almost scarier because yeah. for me, like – there's an aspect of what's happening politically right now, which we're veering off track, but um, no, that's, all it's okay. that's fine. But we are, um, we're in a, we're at a tipping point, which I think science fiction does really good with tipping points. Um, I think horror movies just push you off the cliff, but you know, they give you a consequence either direction in science fiction and in fantasy, you can like fix the problem. Right. Like they provide a problem and then the hero goes and fixes it. Mm -hmm. um, arguably, I would say Star Wars is a, is a space fantasy as opposed to a oh, science fiction. Oh, by far. 100%. Um, and um, just, in, just in terms of like broad definition, like broad strokes definitions. Um, but what's happening, what's interesting right now is there was an aspect of like – I was talking to somebody um, when Roe v. Wade was overturned and uh, there was a lot of talk about like, you know, well, you know, the, 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 you know, the conservatives and blah, 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 grumble, grumble, mm -hmm. grumble. And then there was a thought that was brought up that it's like, well, like how long have the, has, have liberals been running off of, you know, we're going to protect 
we're going to protect, we're going to protect. So vote for us because we're going to protect. It's like both sides were benefiting off of this one court case and the failure to codify that into law and actually do that cost us a lot because ever both both sides were promising something but it all hinged on this existing well that's a that's really fascinating that you bring that up because uh you know it's one of those conversations that's that's very heated um and i also see that exactly i i ask that all the time yeah you know i'm left of bernie so like i i have no problem criticizing the democrats in any in any manner but you bring I think up a good, it's good point. to criticize your own side. I mean, I think even, you know, if you're uh, uh, conservative and watching this show, and I, I tend to be kind of more economically conservative, mm-hmm. but, um, but ple- you know, like I want to support social programming, but I feel like, you know, there's a part of me that, you know, has, has budgeted and produced my short films yeah. and gone like, oh yeah, we should do this better. <laughs> like, right. But if you, if you deal with money in any way, like, you know, you're like, oh yeah, we should definitely make this smoother because this sucks. And, um, and like definitely like right in 15% contingency. Like, <laughs> sure. Of course. Like, but there's a, an aspect to, I think it's good to, which is what stories do really well. I think stories at their core are criticisms Mm-hmm. And it's even like, even those points of Star Trek, like there's an episode of Next Generation, which I really, really love. And it's the episode where they put Data on trial and if mm-hmm. he's really a human or not. Because mm. he, he he is a, a robot, right. but he has been treated for at least, I think, three or four seasons at this point, like he is a person. He has emotions. He has interests. He's learning violin. Like he has a cat. Like he, 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 and it's, and I remember he goes on missions and he always makes sure like someone feeds his cat and like, you know, and even though they probably have automatic feeders at this point, because we do like, they, like they always, he wants to, he cares. And it's like, we think of like fear, care, empathy as human traits, but are they really human or are they programmed? Can they be programmed? And they put this guy on trial guy, this robot on trial and they have to argue, is it a person? And the conclusion of that episode, which I will not reveal, is amazing. And the process of going through that argument is amazing. But Star Trek offers a lot of criticism of the world that we live in, even when the episode doesn't go the way you think it will. I think Empire is a good criticism. I think stories are meant to be criticisms of the world that we live in, either in the positive or in the negative, especially in a positive, optimistic place. What is the consequence of radical optimism? What is the consequence of taking too long to make the right choice because you don't want to be wrong? Um, It's interesting that you you, you mentioned that they put him on trial because he's essentially empathetic. Or to, to receive, it's truly empathetic. Asking yeah. the questions, can androids be empathetic, or are they do just androids program? dream of electric sheep? Right, and you could. I would make the argument that you can't discern because empathy is logical. One of the issues that I that I think that Blade Runner brings up really well in the in the Voigt Kampf test is that it's trying to determine. Oh, yeah, it's trying to determine whether something is human or non-human based on their level of empathy. And I think that a robot who who is free of the selfish, egotistical, self-awareness problems that we have, because in theory, robots are not self-aware, although Blade Runner would say they are, but um, that they would look at it and they would recognize 
that the way that you build this utopian future that you know the Star Treks of the world envision is through understanding and empathy, and that it's 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 our human desire to buck against that and to act in self selfish interest that leads us to fighting war you know, hatred, bigotry, all these things, because we actually don't empathize very well for being a species that has that innate quality. You know, you always hear people who travel or people who who tell people to travel how amazing it is for understanding different cultures, learning different ways of living. Like I'm from South Texas. I'm from the South. Yeah. I live in the West Coast. I travel a lot for my job. I've been to Europe a few times, been to Australia. There, Everyone I know who has traveled and, and immersed themselves in different culture are highly empathetic people because it makes sense to be, because there's a survival component to that, to understanding your opponent, understanding your species, understanding the people there and finding a way to work together for mutual self-interest. I think that's yeah. very logical. And I think that androids would be inclined to be empathetic. at least emulate empathy because – Or mimic. Mimic, yeah, exactly. Because it is the most logical way to live. And it's us that are very illogical beings that buck against what is in our own self-interest. Right. Which is why Vulcans, I mean, I, I think one of the issues I have with Star Trek is the treatment of Spock and the treatment of, and I think that's why Spock keeps coming up in all these iterations. I think that's mm. why he's the pivotal character of the show. I would argue um, because I don't think, logic negates i think you're right i think lo logic doesn't negate emotion it just it's it's stoicism it's the handling of that emotion but right. it doesn't mean he's emotionless and he was treated and he's still dealing with it in in the current series the kind of consequences of being human part right. human but it ends like oh he's more emotional than other you know he's trying to tamp down emotion and it's no he's trying to tamp down the visceral effect of acting on that emotion. It's right. not, he can't be angry It's he's angry, but he's not going to yell at somebody because that won't help him down the line. Um, right. But it's, it's, it comes out because they have to do it very quickly on these TV shows as, you know, explosions, like emotional explosions. Right. And they're, and, and because he's like keeping, he's pushing it down, it explodes very abruptly. Um, but I think it's more along the lines of what you're saying, which is, um, emotion, uh, it, it's empathy is logical. Understanding people is logical and, but flying off the handle because you feel like it is illogical because it doesn't right. support your goal. Anything that's not goal oriented, it seems illogical. If you just live in the moment, it's not serving an overall purpose. And, and you, you bring up a good point about Spock constantly finding a new way into all of these series because um, going back to the movies, I think it was the second, the third movie, Search for Spock. Search for Spock. Kind of reboots Spock, and and you notice that literally every time they, they have to. Yeah, they every time they bring him back, they reboot him back to the like the cold stoic Vulcan, who then slowly but surely starts experiencing emotion, and I think that's the most compelling part of the series in some regard, at least amongst the amongst the crew. 
and it's why they keep returning to it and resetting it because it's that once you get once you got to the point of the first couple of Star Trek movies and um and Spock for all intents and purposes is mostly just a really smart human it's like they feel the need to get back to the origin so they can re-explore that in maybe mm-hmm. a different context or applying modern sensibilities to it. But they always go back to this struggle. The J.J. Yeah. Abrams movies highlight that a lot. You could almost argue Spock's the main character in the J.J. Abrams movies. I would I would agree with that as well. Yeah, it's because it's it's such a compelling aspect of our humanity, this question of what is the balance between head and heart? And also, like, if you watch Strange New Worlds, Ethan Peck, who plays uh, Spock on that television show, who's am- he does amazingly a good job. And um, there's a, a moment when someone is – when uh, Pike is telling a story, and it's down to, like – science fiction is also, like – there's behavioral psychology is also a science, mm-hmm. too. And how we interact with each other is also studied as a science. So it's also adding this layer in it as well of, you know, how do different species with different – um, backgrounds learn to interact with each other. The Federation right. itself is a giant social experiment, the Federation of Planets. Mm-hmm. And he's Pike is telling a story that is at its core embarrassing. It's one of those embarrassing party stories that you tell of like, you know, my first day on the job sort of stuff. And people are chuckling and people are laughing. And Ethan is just sitting there very, sto- very still, very the, the straight back and everything and just like looking around at everybody not visibly confused, but just like almost observing. And his observation is I don't really understand why people laugh at embarrassing stories. Like, isn't it rude? Right. And it's like, and it just like, it it feels illogical to laugh at someone else's misfortune. And like when he puts it that way, it's like, that's why I don't like sitcoms. It's like, I hate laugh because it could be me. Like that sucks. And it's a, it's a valid question to ask us. It's a valid question why we, even on the cityest of levels, take such joy in others' misfortune. What is it about an embarrassing story or when someone trips or like slapstick humor, which is all about almost physical harm? You, you could go back to like the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah. And, uh, or like blue uh, comedy where it's all like kind of gross. And it's like, why do we want to talk about this stuff? This is nasty. Well, some of that I would argue is just pushing norms and pushing boundaries of like what's acceptable, and what's not acceptable. And I do think that's a different component. Oh yeah, the physicality. But I think uh, for a, a Vulcan, it would be all be gross. Sure, possible. Well, actually, it depends on how it's framed, right? Because I think a Vulcan would watch a movie like uh, I'm trying to think, of, like a, a really blue movie. Um, I don't know. Uh, old school or something. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that super bad. Okay, super bad. Super is a great bad. So, I think that a Vulcan would watch would watch super bad, and I don't think the more uh, the blue aspects, like him drawing penises or whatever things like of that nature. I don't know that they would get the joke because it's just anatomy to them, right? right. Like there would be no shame associated with a part of the body that half the species has that I don't think that they would understand the, I don't think they would understand the joke, but I don't think they would be repulsed by it because I think that it would just be a natural thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, for us, what makes it humorous is that we've applied things like clothing in our life and clothing has gone beyond 
uh, simple need to protect ourselves from the elements, and it's become a matter of identity, of of shame, of modesty, of values, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so that is what is so humorous to us Mm -hmm. or repulsive to us, depending on your point of view, because it's being challenged. And I think that we find humor in absurd things. So like I grew up loving jackass. Jackass is gross. Jackass is a bunch of idiots like hurting themselves. There's a lot of potty humor, etc. What's humorous show. about it? How sorry about that again? It's a prank show. It's a prank show, but what's humorous about it is how far they push the boundaries. And those right. boundaries would not be funny being crossed if they didn't exist. Right. You know, it's like a jackass plays with the boundary of what's mm-hmm. acceptable. And they're just like, here's how far this boundary can go. Right. And I think people enjoy seeing because it's like, I think people enjoy jackass because it's like, I could never do that in real life or I would never do that in real life. And there's people who are like, yeah, we're going to do it. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. treat it like going to the store. Like, it's ridiculous how like blase they are about it. Oh, me, me and my friend used to like get get in shopping carts and like run into curbs and like go flying in the bush. Or like one time I got handcuffed by the police because I got on my friend's truck and he drove into the giant box. You know, like behind Walmart, they have those, the flattened boxes yeah, kind of yeah. stacked. So he drove his truck into it and I went flying off into the boxes. And then the police came around and, and uh, they didn't arrest us. They just handcuffed us for a while, harassed us. But they're just like, you think about what you've done. Yeah. I didn't think about it. I know you did. Um, you were just like, let's do it again. Exactly. But I, I do think that when we look at things like humor and we try to understand how a an Android, an AI, a, a Vulcan, uh, any of these sort of uh, archetypes would view them, I think that they would largely land flat because what is humorous about them is how illogical we are, how irrational we are, how um, – like again, like just to bring up the thing about like – how uh, give you a great example when i was a kid the sex talk that my mom gave me was don't get a girl pre- if you get a girl pregnant don't come to me for help good job mom yeah it's awesome but i didn't so it worked clearly um but that but that is- was a a on a, a psychological level it was like i it it was something would be taken away from you if yes. you but it's also it also it, it, that aspect is very logical, right? But it's, it's also logical. very modest because there's no no conversation about practicality. There's no, no conversation using even even scientific terminology to describe the the actions, and the, it was very yeah. much sort of a threat, and only that. Yeah. Right. So, bringing all this back to science fiction, I think one of the things that I notice right now is that science fiction is kind of having a tough time. Obviously there's mm-hmm. shows like Star Trek and Dune and but they're all looking they're all rehashing the Yeah, exactly. We aren't really seeing anything that's asking like the question that we just asked. This whole conversation about like norms and pushing boundaries and and, and what is funny, what's not funny, those kind of things I haven't seen, maybe you have aren't really being exploring being explored on a science fiction level. Like to me, I mean, I know there is science fiction like comedy, but that's, that's an opportunity. I think where 
you could really explore some of these topics of cultural norms and what's absurd and what's not absurd and what is what does it say about our culture that we live in this manner or that manner. Um, how, how do these sort of irreverent comedies and and viewpoints and subclasses? How do they all play into the larger society? And and what role does does all that kind of like um, uh, humanities that could be that be the uh, um, what's the uh, anthropology anthropology, yeah. like anthropology that could be addressed and explored through the use of science fiction in particular. AI, because so much of our technology that that was very advanced and futuristic in ye olden days of like the original series or even Blade Runner or Star Trek or Star Wars, rather, we've invented it and maybe even in many regards surpassed it. Outside of like, you know, transporters, we pretty much have invented most of the technology that used to seem very futuristic to us. So how do we continue to use sci-fi in a way that's more than a um, like a tribute band to the past? I think there are two aspects of um, – in my first episode of uh, uh, Final Frontier, I talked to a planetary physicist and we had a similar conversation. And what I will say is that he pointed out – that there's two ways to use science and science fiction. There's kind of the Wellsian way, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's more of a technology supports the story and it supports the platform of whatever philosophical argument you're trying to tell. And then there's the more like, it's about the technology that's being made and like more of, and and it's more so those types of shows that are technology based, um, it require a lot more explanation of the world. There's a lot more expositional scenes. There's a lot more, you know, people talking about what's happening on the outside so that you can understand why they're creating the technology in the first place um, or what the technology is doing in the world because it's not about the world. Um, Whereas science fiction, like uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, Dune, um, those are all, you know, and I'm all, we're also naming titles that are, you know, older titles of science right. fiction. Um, they're, you know, re- and the reboots that we're getting today are, you know, off of, um, you know, stuff that was created in the 50s and 60s. And then even more so, like, you know, adaptations of, of things. Yeah. But we have a ton of modern science fiction that has nothing to do with that. We have, um, I'm thinking of The Expanse um, in particular. Uh, which is a really good modern science fiction. It was the science fiction books were published in uh, 2011 and then the show happened. Um, So that's pretty modern. And that's all about um, unraveling a conspiracy. Basically it's humans have already colonized the solar system. So modern science fiction's place, no matter what part you take it from is the world that is constructed has to be so strong and so tight that no matter what story you put on top of it, it won't buckle that it can, the world supports the weight of whatever philosophical discussion that we're having, whatever anxiety our generation is facing, whatever problem this world is facing um, in our audience world, the platform is the science fiction is the platform. So I think that's why a lot of these, developments that we see are already created and are already established in the world. 
Um, there are very few moments where um, I think the, the, the one, oh God, I'm not going to say the one, an exception to this uh, is Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I say that is because there's a lot of instances, especially in season two, where they manipulate existing technology to fix a current problem. Interesting. Where it's like, and they, they even do it in the uh, in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which I've mentioned. Um, they had to figure out how to transport um, the liquid in a vial inside somebody, which a transporter cannot do. And the transporter operator is like, we can't do that. That is not possible. And his superior gets on the comm and goes, hey, this is your superior. Find a way to make it do that. And right. he has to. And it's like, it's it's the manipulation of that technology, one, was solving a story problem, but more so than in older science fiction stuff, Star Wars, like, the ships were already there. The lightsabers right. already existed. Um, the uh, In Star Trek, like, the food-making machines and, and the energizers and the, the, the blasters were already there. Dune, everything already exists. But I think how modern science fiction like halo series and you know video games it's the existing technology that is being manipulated and changed um and i think a lot of it is coming from the video game world everyone like i'm a huge fan of the witcher Mm -hmm. um and it's you know even something as simple as like every every witcher gets a sword when you you that is your weapon you have a sword but you can add things to the sword depending on what your armor class is and your strengths are and how you fight. And you can change your armor to make whatever, to individualize it in a way, to solve whatever problem you're encountering at the time. If you're encountering a demon, you add an oil. If you go to the you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's an aspect of science fiction that is taking a lot from games and taking a lot from plausibility as opposed to possibility find a way to make an existing thing do the thing we need it to do and you see that that approach to filmmaking in a lot of like uh biopics so like as you're talking about this the first thing it makes me think of is apollo 13 yeah okay Uh, another movie that i saw really recently was hidden figures i love that movie i also have an apollo 13 story when you're ready I do want to hear that in just a moment. Like those stories, they're talking about sp- real life space travel, right? They're they're obviously stylized and dramatized versions of real events, but they really highlight the struggle that is science. They mm-hmm. they really highlight how sometimes you're going to have to put a square peg in a round hole, and the time is going, and you got to figure out how to do it because someone's survival or maybe all of our survival is is sort of buoyed on that. And another movie that does it in a different way is don't look up. Yeah. Where you really have to, I mean, I wouldn't say that that is a science fiction movie. Uh, It's really more of a commentary on, on climate change and American society specifically and how, how we're going to basically. But it is a science fiction movie. In a sense. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's just science is being ignored. It's the kind of, Right, ultimate science fiction movie in a way where it's like we have the science we're not listening to the science as opposed to these other pantheons of science fiction where we did listen to the science and incorporate it into our daily life right whereas we're using the science that we have i mean the end end credit scene which spoiler alert is hilarious 
<laughs> is based on this technology and it's there's one survivor right. and he's instagramming to nothing right but he's still yeah. using it it's like it's the it's those are that's taking the science of the day pushing it to the ultimate nth degree and what is the consequence i mean it is a science fiction movie well, and it also isn't just ignoring science. It's also exploiting science. Yeah, right? to get that thing up, the, the spaceship up in the air to the yeah. other thing. Yeah. And and I, I bring the, that I love up. that idea of ex- the exploitation of science. Ooh, okay. Ugh. Because I do think that that is – like we talked earlier about how, like, how do you tell a modern horror story. I also think that that's some of the ways that you, we could talk about modern science fiction stories, which is that if you look at – you know, you look at Elon Musk driving his Tesla up in space and Jeff Brazos driving his his penis spaceship to the, you know, yeah. outer space. Yeah, blue, blue origin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there, you, you see that a lot of the technological giants that exist, the entrepreneurs, they're kind of using technology. Obviously, they're um, – they're obviously taking the technology to exploit and make a lot of money, make billions and billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. And maybe not necessarily applying it to the advancements of, of humanity. So food for thought as you're scripting out new stories, but you just finished a story for recently. Uh, you did a, a tribute to X-Men, correct? I did. And before that, here's my quick little, I forgot to do the Apollo 13 thing. Oh yes. I know you led me in perfectly and I'm ruining it. <laughs> so here's the story I just found out about Apollo 13. There's a scientist named Judith Love Cohen who helped create the abort guidance system, which rescued mm. the Apollo 13 astronauts. She went to work the same day that she went into labor with her son. Wow. <laughs> and she took the printout of the problem to the hospital while she was in labor and called her boss to tell him her solution and then gave birth to Jack Black. Wait, Jack really? Black is her son, and she gave birth to him while working out the Apollo 13 guidance issue. Wow, that is amazing. First off, why was that not in the movie? I don't know. <laughs> Secondly, that's uh, that's pretty wild. Her, I mean, obviously her son is a, a genius in his own right, although I don't know that people would have necessarily assumed that he'd be the sire of this scientific genius – and and badass because you know when I talked to my mom about me being her being in labor with me I don't know that my mom would have come up with like a you know a manual to save people's lives she just mostly hand, guilt trips me that she was in labor for three days amazing things yes that's <laughs> just true. like I want this to be over um, that's very or, true that's very you know true. I had to do a prop list when I first, I got my first tattoo because I just couldn't handle the pain I just had to like yell work really? at my poor friend yeah. But speaking of yelling work at my poor friends, I just um, I wrote a uh, a fan film for X Men based on Rogue and Gambit as characters, mm-hmm. and it was inspired by a four comic book run in 1995 written by Harold Mackey um, okay. about Rogue, and so we kind of pick up at the end of that story and a possible future, a possible ending for that story. Um, I wanted to talk about relationships and vulnerability with superheroes um, and kind of try to humanize superheroes a little bit. Uh, and it was really fun. Cause I got to just, I took my friends up to the mountains. We had this house in uh, Lake Arrowhead that we all stayed at and mm-hmm. we shot over two days and it was two 10 hour days. It wasn't very bad. It wasn't too bad. 
Nice. Now, uh, and everyone was wrote, in bed. Or did you just direct? No, or? my room. I I wrote and directed and produced the piece. Um, and uh, my roommates played Rogue and Gambit. My my lovely lovely roommates. So, uh, cool. and that was a a dream for her to play Rogue. So I'm glad I got to you know throw a script at her and go do it. Now, when might we be able to see this short film? My goal is October because October 31st of this year is the 30th anniversary of X-Men the Animated Series. If anyone Excellent. wants to mark their calendar, excellent indeed, sir. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and uh, I've got a couple of other X-related projects on the horizon. So uh, cool. this is what happens when my brain gets to work and it's too late at night and, you know, I've had a glass of wine and I'm just like, what if we did this? And what if we did this? This is my version of the what if part. It's like, what if we did this story and what if we put it in this place? And, you know, then my, the brain starts going. That's why I couldn't be a scientist is I'm too story driven. Well, I, I would argue against that. I think that's precisely why you should be a scientist and why it's so amazing that you're fusing, you know, the creative, you know, storytelling with the analytical, which is science fiction or science mm. science in general. Because I don't – just like what I was saying earlier about empathy, I don't think there's a divide that people make it out to be. Yeah. I think that um, they're very – this science is born of questioning, Science is born of looking at the stars and asking who we are and where we are. If those fundamental questions are not asked, then there's no need to develop science. If the ideas of floods and gods and Valhalla and whatever, if those myths aren't created to explain to be the initial explanations then there is no progression to then explain it under scientific terms and at the very beginning of this podcast i i don't remember the exact quote you said but you sort of alluded to the connection between like magic and science yeah or, science and, and is the, magic that we have named exactly and there's obviously the famous line from thor where he says you know what you call science on your world in our in my world science and magic are one and the same yep and i i do think that that's they are together and i actually think that it's one of the biggest problems right now in the world is that we've somehow created a divide that isn't isn't natural from science and from storytelling from empathy and analytical and i i wonder if some of the distrust that we feel right now some of the divide that we as a humanity have self-imposed upon ourselves could not be remedied by remarrying those two concepts. I wonder um, if that's why Spock is that important character in everything, because he is literally logic and emotion meeting together and creating a logical empathy. And the struggle of that. And the struggle of logical empathy, which but is – every in every instance, it. in every instance, he never – he never discards the emotion. No. He always he discards the emotion. Do I know? He, he picards picards the emotion. <laughs> That's a perfect out. So yeah! hey, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I know you're busy and I and I really do appreciate it. It was very last minute that we oh, put I had this such together, a blast. It's it's awesome. It'll come out tomorrow. So if you're listening to this, it's gonna be on Tuesday. Right. Um but yeah, thank you so much for your time. I'm really looking forward to seeing your short film. Me too. Go listen to the Final Frontier podcast because it's really entertaining. You've done 
two three episodes now? two episodes because i i had to push this one because i was shooting um and then episode three which is about the ghosts of illyria which is the third episode Ooh. of star trek strange new worlds uh we're going to talk about vitamin d deficiency in space it's going to be quite oh. fun <laughs> Very interesting. Well, just a little a little teaser for the previous episodes. Obviously, we talked about uh, the first episode where we're talking about um, planetary science and it's it's uh, how it's interwined into Star Trek and the different kinds of science fiction and approaches mm-hmm. to science fiction. But the second episode, as someone who grew up playing violin for most of my childhood, was the connection between music and and how that is in its own form of science. Yeah. Uh, and then we, when we talk about, yeah. And when we talk about storytelling, how many, I mean, early storytelling did actually even talk, even this is what we're doing now. The manipulation of my vocal cords and my diaphragm to create yeah. sound, to create language, which is storytelling. It's all rooted in math and science. And so, I don't think that they're separate things, and I think that you, they, everyone should take a listen to your podcast because it's you're you're a great host, as everyone Thank who's listening to this can tell. <laughs> you're so natural on camera, you flow so nicely. If you had told me that you've been doing this for a million years, I would 100% believe it because you you're a natural and ace at this. So uh, go listen to the Final Frontier. Thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. I feel very generous and or uh, very blessed for having grateful. you on board. Super grateful. Uh, you are very generous to sp- share your time. And I hope that the rest of the day is wonderful. Me too. You too, my love. It's so good to awesome. talk to you. I would like to thank Kate once again for coming on the show and sharing all of her amazing insights, all of her amazing perspectives, uh, everything she knows about geek culture and, and science fiction and technology and Again, as I said at the top of the show, please go listen to her podcast. It's really good. It's a solid listen. It flies by. You're going to come out smarter. And really, at the end of the day, all these artistic endeavors, be it podcasts or TV shows or radio programs, hopefully the goal is for us to leave with something a bit more than we walked into it with. And I think Kate's show does an excellent job. And I hope this show does that job on some level as well. I mentioned in the in the episode this idea that prophets are not so much people who look to the future or who can predict the future, but rather they're people who understand the past. And if you look at some of the great science fiction writers, and the first one who jumps to mind is like George Orwell, someone who truly understood what was going on in the here and now of his time. And by understanding that, and also the things that led up to those moments, he was able to put out works of art, literature, that were able to predict this future that we're currently living in. We can all take that lesson. We can all go backward and truly aim to understand the past and how we got where we are at. One of the things that I see way too often in modern politics, social understandings, um, and philosophy is that we have an idea, or at least there are some folks that have an idea as to what we should have, but they lack the understanding of why we should have it and what steps we've gone through to be at the point where we're ready to have these items. Many people don't understand the sacrifices that were made. Many people don't understand the social political landscapes that defined the way things are structured now and why they have changed, which allows us to then advance as a society. We just want something, but we don't know why. We feel something, but we don't know why. We predict, we have that that tingling on our skin, the hairs on the back of our neck are rising, but we don't know why. And the answers are out there. 
the truth is out there. All one must do is do a deep dive, a deep understanding, open your mind, listen to everyone's perspectives, even the ones you disagree with, because somewhere between all of that, you've heard the old adage, you know, there's her side, his side, and and in the middle is the truth. It's finding that truth that allows us to understand how and why we are now, which will then hopefully help us predict and manage where we will be in the future and maybe even avoid making the same mistakes we've made in the past. So I want to thank Kate once again for coming on the podcast. I want to thank you all for listening once again. I know it's a couple days late, but I promise you listening to Kate is going to be well worth it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I had uh, conducting the, the conversation. And please listen to her podcast, The Final Frontier. Come back, join us next week when we'll have another great guest. And until next time, gold rings on you all.